I would teach to an empty room, but it's nice to have faces. So what we're going to look at is um, Luke 23, 39-44, and it's that section of the, the, the two thieves. And uh, I titled this The uh, Grace and the Thief. And um, do you have a, fa- a favorite story about Jesus? I do. I've got a couple of favorite stories. Uh, one of mine is the leper that was healed. I love it where he comes to Jesus and he's begging Jesus for healing. And what does Jesus do to this leper? He touches him. I mean, that to me is just amazing because you just don't touch a leper, you know. But Jesus touched this leper and he was healed. Another story is kind of similar. It's the Syrophoenician woman who came and was pleading to Jesus to, what, deliver her, her daughter from a demon or a devil. And it seemed like Jesus was putting her off, was ignoring her, but she was persistent in her in her faith, and he rewarded that persistence. I mean, the whole dialogue to me is just an intriguing story. And yet Jesus goes ahead and he does as the woman requested because of her persistence. It just is to me, it's just very intriguing. Both of these uh, stories, uh, both of them are tragic. Both of them are seemingly hopeless stories. But yet, who was the difference maker? Jesus. Jesus was the difference maker in that whole thing. Uh, One couldn't do anything about their disease. The other one couldn't do anything about her heredity. But yet, they came to Jesus seeking mercy, and both of these folks received grace. Those are good stories. Those are good stories. The account that we're going to look at with the thief on the cross is very similar. Very similar. Um, Talk about a hopeless situation. Really. Talk about a hopeless situation. There you are. Not you are, but there he is. He's nailed to the cross. He's nailed to the cross. Uh, What is he going to do? And again, the difference maker in, 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 in his situation, Jesus. Jesus was the difference maker in his situation. Instead of condemnation, this man received grace. So let's take a look at this. In Luke 23, starting in verse 32, we read, And there were also two other malefactors, we already talked about that, led with him to be put to death. And when they were come to the place, which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. So we have uh, Jesus crucified, and on each side of Jesus we have these two men on either side. John's gospel also testifies to the very same thing on either side one and Jesus in the midst. So we have Jesus in the middle and these two thieves on either side. These men slated for execution that day, according to Matthew and Mark, were thieves. They were criminals. Luke calls them a malefactor. A malefactor is simply an evildoer, someone who has a very bad and very destructive character. So these were bad men. These were criminals. 
Uh, in fact, John simply refers to them as others. <laughs> Almost as if, you know, they're not even worthy of mention because they're such criminals, because they're such a deplorable character. And so we have these uh, three men crucified on Calvary, two of them justly, one not so much, not so much. Luke also tells us that these two men also followed along with Jesus as they were being led to Calvary. So chances are they carried their cross just like Jesus carried his, right? So they carried their cross just right along with Jesus all the way to this place called Golgotha, this place that's called the place of the skull. That's what Calvary means, place of the skull. We also talked about that. It kind of looks like a skull there. And uh, so these three individuals were crucified. Now, it's not really clear how much these other two men may have known about the uh, dramatic trial that Jesus had been subjected to that we studied here in, the, in Luke's gospel. But what these men could see was the evidence of the beatings that Jesus had uh, been submitted to. They saw the crown of thorns that he was wearing. Uh, they heard the mockery and the ridicule and the scorning uh, from the religious leadership that uh, railed on Jesus as he walked toward Calvary. They, they witnessed all of that. Of course, Isaiah talked about this centuries before. In Isaiah 52, 14, as many as were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man in his form, more than the sons of men. So that tells me that Jesus' whole body, his face, everything, was black and blue and swollen and distorted from the treatment that he had received at the hands of the Romans. They probably didn't know anything about the screaming mob that was goaded by the religious leadership that that screamed out, you know, crucify him, crucify him. Because they were probably still in their jail cells at the time. I don't know. I don't know. While there in their jail cell, they may have heard that one of their fellow prisoners by the name of Barabbas was released. And they probably would have hoped, well, I wish that was me (laughs) that was being released. I don't know. I don't know. These are just things that I think about. But what they did see was a man badly beaten, almost beyond recognition. He also could see that the crowd was very interested in this particular individual. They also could see the hatred and the venom from the religious leadership. You know, it's interesting. These same religious men who would not defile themselves by going into where Pilate was didn't think anything of casting their scorn and blasphemy at Jesus as he was being led away. Kind of hypocritical, isn't it? Kind of hypocritical. Now, when they arrived at the place of execution, understand that's stylized. When they arrived at the place of execution, Jesus was placed in the middle. Now, the place in the middle, from what I could read from history books and stuff, that's the spot that was reserved for the most infamous of those who were being executed. 
Alright, so the worst of the worst was the one who was stuck in the middle during the crucifixion. You kind of wonder if uh, maybe his um, enemies didn't want to add insult to injury and make sure that he was put in the middle. Jesus put in the middle. Who was this man? If you were one of the thieves and you didn't know anything... Wouldn't you kind of wonder? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe you'd be so caught up in your own situation, you probably wouldn't give any thought to it. I don't know. But if I was one of those two thieves and I didn't know anything about Jesus, I would certainly think, well, what did this guy do to deserve this kind of treatment? He must be worse than I am. I don't know. That's just speculation. Just speculation. And then they stuck that sign on top of his cross, which may have been a clue to this man's crime. Ah, he's he's an insurrectionist. Because it said in the three languages, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. So maybe maybe that's why. Maybe it's because he was an insurrectionist, causing trouble. Again, Isaiah 53, 12. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors. And he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So as the Roman soldiers were going about their grim business of nailing the condemned men to these crosses, because they would lay them down on the ground first and then tack them to the cross, surely they heard him say, Jesus, say, Father, forgive them. But they know not what they do. And after they did that, they would lift these crosses up and they would drop them into a socket in the ground, a hole in the ground. And then they would drive wooden wedges of stone to keep the crosses upright. Now think about that for a minute. Here you are nailed to a cross. They lift you up and then drop you down into a hole. What do you think that would do to your feet and your wrists or hands? That'd be rough, wouldn't it? There'd be no way to brace yourself for that. And so as they hung there, these two men with Jesus in the middle... And they would watch the parade of people that would go before Jesus, mocking him and railing him. Mark 15:29, and they that passed by railed on him, wagging their heads and saying, "Ah, oh, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself and come down from the cross." Likewise, also the chief priests mocking said among themselves with the scribes, he saved others, himself he cannot save. Let Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. This is what these men are hearing from these folks. You can almost imagine the self-righteousness and the smug jeers of his enemies as they ridicule Jesus as he's there in his pain. And it was these same men that Jesus gave his sharpest words, calling them hypocrites. 
And now they're happy. They're happy now that Jesus is up there on the cross. He was a threat to them. We talked about that. He was a threat to their position. He was a threat to their influence. And so they had to do something about him. And so finally, they thought, we'll silence this guy. We got him right exactly where we want him. And so they thought that was the end of the story. And even the soldiers, we read, even the soldiers mocked him and taunted him. You know who else taunted Jesus? Besides the soldiers and the religious leaders. You know who else taunted Jesus while he was on the cross? Those two men. Those two men. Matthew 27, 44, the thieves also, which were crucified with him, cast the same in his teeth. That's pretty remarkable, isn't it? If you stop and think about it. These two men were suffering the very same fate as Jesus. And if you think if you you would think if anybody would sympathize with what Jesus was going through, you'd think it would be these two men. But no, they were. They were also in their own pain, their own sufferings. They also was able to get enough breath to join in the blasphemy and the mocking of Jesus. I mean, what kind of king is this who wore a woven bundle of thorns for a crown and a cross was his throne? So even these two men would ridicule Jesus. That's pretty remarkable. Really is. Then at about noontime, the sixth hour, an incredible event occurred. A phenomena happened that these people did not expect to happen. In Luke 23:44 it says and it was about the sixth hour and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. And I'll talk about that a little later on about this darkness. But it is possible to read if you read this passage it is possible to read this as an event that had occurred along with Jesus having this conversation with the thief that we're getting ready to study about. The, the wording or the phrase, and it was, indicates a possible connection between this thief and Jesus' conversation. Could it be that this sudden darkness prompted this thief's calling out? I don't know. But it is possible, grammatically, to make that connection. And when that darkness happened, we read in verse 39 of Luke 23, And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. So it shook this guy up. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. 
this story points to points out to us why we need God's grace. Why we need God God's grace. We live in a darkened, graceless world, don't we? We really do. I mean, even from childhood, we are conditioned to expect justice instead of mercy. I mean, from our parents and teachers, at least that's the way it used to be. (laughs) That's the way it used to be. Um, At least leniency, at least a lessening of uh, of our sentence or our penalty. You know, the shallow hope is always there that we don't truly get what we justly deserve, isn't it? When we get pulled over by the police officer, don't we kind of hope, I hope he doesn't give me a ticket. I hope he's nice. I hope the fine isn't too big. We have here these two men who represent men everywhere. Everywhere today. Both are condemned under the law. Both are condemned under the law. Both men are experiencing the ultimate penalty for their crimes. Paul says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. This, This first man, he expresses no remorse or any guilt for his crimes, his sins. There's never any record of his being otherwise. Instead, you know, he's, he's, he's still railing on Jesus. He spends his last moments on earth throwing out insults and taunts to the only one who can truly save him. It's kind of tragic. The word railed means exactly that, to speak reproachfully about somebody, to even blaspheme. And his companion rightly declares of him that there is no fear of God with this man. That's how hard he has become in his sin. He heckles Jesus with the words, If thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. Multitudes of people today are already condemned in their sin are just like this man. Just like this man. They ridicule Jesus, they blaspheme Jesus, they deride Jesus, they devalue his life and his sacrifice. Uh, To many in the world, Jesus is nothing more than a joke or an object of disdain or ridicule. There's no fear of God with these folks. And unfortunately, when they die... They die in that state. Yet, remarkably, God's grace is even extended to them. Even extended to them. 1 Timothy 4.10 says, For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach, and because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men. Not just the elect. All men. Then he says, especially of those that believe. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But he is the Savior of all men. All men. 
In their ignorance and unbelief, they reject his offer of forgiveness and choose instead, just like this man, to die in their sin. They make that choice. Then we have the second man. He also railed on Jesus. He also blasphemed Jesus. He also was part of the mocking. And just like the other thief, he he blasphemed Jesus. He railed on Jesus. Now I'm not sure what touched this man's heart. Is it possible that he may have heard about Jesus at some time? Because Jesus was certainly on everybody's topic list when he was alive. Everybody talked about Jesus. Everybody did. Was it possible that at one time he may have heard Jesus speak or preach in a village or in Jerusalem or wherever? But like a lot of folks, that seed falls on the ground choked with weeds? I don't know. I don't know. Was it what Jesus said when he was being nailed to the cross? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I don't know. Was it the sudden darkness? That certainly would stop me to think a bit. I don't know. I don't know. It could have been one thing. It could have been a lot of things. But conviction came to this man's heart. What was it that touched your heart? What was it that touched your heart? What words or actions or events did God use when he first started calling you? With me, it began with a young man who was hitchhiking one icy cold winter day along Old 71 Highway. And I picked him up, you know, to give him a ride. I was as lost as lost could be, but yet this young man witnessed to me in that little Volkswagen car that day. That was the first time I heard the gospel. And I was raised a Roman Catholic. But that was the first time I heard the gospel. And then later on, I started working for Transworld Airlines and met up with another young man in the mailroom. And God used this man to finish that calling, if you want to call it that. It was through his testimony that I received Christ as my Savior. So what was it in your life that started that, that called you to Jesus? I don't know what it was in this man's life, but the Holy Spirit touched his heart that day and brought conviction to his heart. I mean, listen to the words of this guy. Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? He rebukes the other thief. And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man hath done nothing amiss. Those are pretty remarkable words. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. What an amazing thing that took place on that hill. Here a man is nailed to the cross. And he's calling out to Jesus for salvation. 
In the final moments of his life, he confesses with his mouth to the Lord Jesus Christ, and he believes in his heart. Hmm, I seem to have read that somewhere. He had faith and he confessed it. One, he confessed it before the guy who didn't agree with him. Didn't he? In fact, he rebuked this other man for lack of reverence, for his failure to grasp the seriousness of their circumstance, the justice of their condemnation, and the innocence of Jesus. That's pretty remarkable if you really think about it. He confesses publicly his faith. Remember, they were surrounded by people who were blaspheming Jesus. They were surrounded by the soldiers. They were surrounded by those who were sympathetic. Jesus' mom was there. And John was there. And others were there. And so he made this public profession of his faith before everybody that was there that day. He confessed his sin and guilt. He said, we deserve to be here. We deserve that we belong on these crosses. We're receiving what we deserve. So he confessed his guilt. He confessed his his sin. And he says, you know what? (laughs) We're getting the reward of our evil life. That's what he says, and we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. This speaks of all of us. You know, without Christ, what do we deserve? Nothing but judgment. Am I not right? Yeah, we deserve nothing but judgment. Who can quote Romans 3.23? That's one of the very first memory verses in our discipleship lessons. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Does that just mean some of us? Or does that mean all of us? From the Pope down, all of us. All of us. This is why we need God's grace. We need God's grace because we don't measure up. And according to God's word, we never will. We never can. There's nothing we can do. Nothing we can do. You know, sometimes I think my brothers and sisters forget that. You know, they get a little Bible knowledge under their belt. They do a few things around the church and all of a sudden their head balloons. And they think they're all that in a bag of chips. And we forget where we came from. Romans 3.20, therefore by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. That's not that hard to understand. It's pretty clear. We need God's grace because his standard is so high and our best efforts to reach that is so low. We just can't do it. His standard is his own perfect holiness. I like this thief. We 
were already nailed to the cross. <laughs> we were already dead in our sins and trespasses. That's what Colossians 2.14 says. Um, the handwriting of an ordinances that was against us. We already had a hopeless situation. And the only thing we could do was what this man did. Call upon the name of the Lord. Something else he does here. He confessed the Lord before all and he called upon the name of the Lord in faith. He said, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Notice what he says here. He says, remember me. That's a personal appeal. Lord, remember me. See, that's what salvation is. Salvation is a personal appeal. It is the sinner calling out to their Savior. I can't make that appeal for you. You can't make that appeal. As much as I would love to be able to make that appeal for my family and my friends, I can't do it. That's something that's between you and God. Personal. Personal. It's got to be a personal appeal. And he calls out, Lord, the very one that he mocked and blasphemed, he now claims as Lord. He had a change of heart. He had a change of mind. I'm going to use a dirty word in some people's vocabulary. He repented. He had a change of mind. He had a change of heart. Where once he ridiculed him, blasphemed him, he now calls out Lord. He calls out in faith. Saving faith confesses its sin and calls out to the Lord. It admits, yes, I'm a sinner. There's absolutely nothing I can do. And yes, you are my Savior. You're the only one that can help me. He made a confession of his sin, admittance of guilt, recognition of his just desert. He did the only possible thing he could do. He turned to Jesus in faith. It's no different with anybody. No different with anybody. That's true repentance. That's a change of mind, a change of heart. It has nothing to do with what we can do. But it has everything to do in what we think about Jesus. This man couldn't offer a lifetime of commitment, could he? It was too late for him to turn away from a life of sin. It wasn't possible now for him to clean up his act. Right? He couldn't restore everything that he stole fourfold. Baptism was certainly out of the question. 
church attendance, giving money, there was absolutely nothing this man could do. He did the only thing he could do. He was condemned to die. Hanging on the cross. In fact, just three hours from this time, the Roman soldiers would come and break that man's legs to hasten the inevitable. He could do absolutely nothing for himself. Nothing. And he did the only thing he could do, and he called upon the name of the Lord in faith. That was the only thing he could do. That's the only thing anyone can do. You can't get clean enough. You can't come to church enough. That's not what's required. In his heart and mind, this man turned from his attitude of blasphemy and ridicule, and now by faith, he calls out to the one who can save him. Where at one time he railed upon him, he now worships him. That's a change of heart. That's a change of mind. Apostle Paul says something very similar about the Thessalonian believers. First Thessalonians 1.9, he says, For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had on to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. What caused that turn? They received the gospel by faith. To me, this thief on the cross is one of the clearest examples of what the Bible talks about when it talks about repentance. It's a change of mind. It takes, it, it takes place inside the mind. It takes place inside of the heart. Now, if the man was off the cross, you would see the fruits of that change in a changed life. And that's what we should see, a change of life in those who profess Christ as our Savior. In fact, if, if you don't see a change, you know, you can tell a tr- tree by its fruits, right? But I don't get into that. that I, you know, I don't get too far into that because I've, I've seen a lot of fruitless trees, seemingly fruitless trees, all of a sudden just bear fruit like crazy. So I'm not in the judging game. I leave that up to God. But a lot of folks take this word repentance and they get their shorts in a twist about it because they think that you're telling someone, well, you've got to clean up your act first before you come to Jesus. No. Well, that's not what it means. You just need to think differently about who Jesus is. <laughs> He's your Savior. He's your Lord. And we don't have any... Do we have the power to clean up our act? There's only one person that I can think of that can clean up our act. 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to what? Cleanse us from all... Yeah, he's the one who does the cleansing. This thief couldn't do any of that. His situation was truly utter hopelessness. It was too late for him to clean up his act. He couldn't make any absolution of sins. 
didn't matter how many Hail Marys he prayed. Nothing he could do. He couldn't pay back everything he stole. It was his sins that nailed him to that cross. He was already a man dead in his trespasses and sins. What he did do was express his faith in the only one that could save him. And God saved him. The grace of God. The grace of God. This man who was nailed to his own cross for his own sins turned to Jesus looking for mercy. And unlike the other thief who was railing at Jesus and jeering at Jesus, notice the other man when he called out to Jesus, save thyself and us. What do you think that man was wanting to be saved from? The physical consequences. You know what? That's what a lot of people come to Jesus for. They come to Jesus because they want Jesus to save them from their physical consequences of sin, their situation and their circumstances. And unfortunately, we've got a lot of preachers out there that preach that kind of gospel. Come to Jesus and he'll get you that brand new car. Come to Jesus and he'll fix your marriage. Come to Jesus and he'll make your kids obey. Come to Jesus and you'll get that promotion. Is that why we come to Jesus? But that's what's being preached. That's what this man was all about. He was wanting to be delivered from the physical consequences. The physical consequences. This other thief, he wanted to be delivered from his eternal consequences. That's the difference. That's what must be understood. It's the eternal consequences that we must be delivered from. God never promises that if you get saved, he's going to fix your marriage. It's going to help, but he doesn't promise that. And God doesn't promise that you're going to get that Mercedes if you come to Jesus. (laughs) He'll provide your needs... But he never promises that Mercedes. But what he does promise is that you will have everlasting life. And you know what? Once we get there into heaven, that Mercedes is going to look like a cheap wooden go-kart. This man was looking for a better resurrection than he deserved. You know, the Jews believed in the resurrection. Daniel 12, 12, 2 talks about those who are resurrected unto shame and those who are resurrected unto um, to be great lights in heaven. They believed in that. And that's what he was looking forward to. This man appealed to God's mercy and in doing so he received 
grace. Listen to what Jesus said to this man. He said, Verily I say unto you, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Now the promise of Jesus, do you think it alleviated this man's pain? No. He still suffered all the suffering and pain and agony of a cross. Can you imagine being up there on that cross and then having some soldier come by and break your legs? He wasn't delivered from any of that. He wasn't delivered from any of that. But what a release it must have been of his soul. When that burden of guilt and shame and the consequences of that, that eternal consequences of all, all of that was lifted. Do you remember the day all of that was lifted? I do. I remember that. I remember when all of that was... There wasn't anybody that I didn't want to tell... I I told everybody I came into contact with about what happened. The people on my job site thought I was a fanatic. My parents thought I was a fanatic. No, I was just forgiven. And I wanted everybody else to be forgiven. Do you remember that? Is it still with you? Now, it didn't alleviate the physical pain, but it did lift that burden of guilt. You see, this other guy, he carried that burden into hell. This other thief, he stepped into paradise free free of that burden and guilt that's great love that's grace even in the midst of his own agony in the midst of his own pain the Lord shows grace to a sinner who comes to him in faith listen to what Jesus says verily truthfully What I'm saying to you, you can put your whole faith on. Verily, I say unto you, a promise made from his own mouth. We have that same promise from his own mouth. Today, immediate salvation. Not a working to a salvation but immediate salvation. Shalt thou, a personal salvation, be with me, eternal fellowship and acceptance in Christ, in paradise. Grace. Much more than any of us truly deserve. There's no course of probation to go through. There's no attainments to be sought after and no protracted efforts to be made in order to be, made, to be saved. All you need to do is by faith call out to the name of the Lord and you will be saved. We all come to Jesus with empty hands. We all come to Jesus broken, irreparable, 
hopeless. And when we do so, he doesn't give what we justly deserve, does he? He gives us grace. He gives us grace. We don't need to come to God seeking leniency or lessening of our sentence. Because Jesus paid it all. And to all and all to him we owe. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, what does that say? Amen. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. My chains are gone, I've been set free. My God, my Savior, has ransomed me. And like a flood, his mercy reigns, unending love, amazing grace. The Lord has promised good to me, his word my hope secures.' He will my shield and portion be as long as life deserves. The earth shall soon dissolve like snow, the sun forbear to shine, but God who called me here below will be forever mine. My chains are gone, I've been set free, my God, my Savior has ransomed me, and like a flood his mercy reigns, unending love, amazing grace. Did you know that there were other words to that song? Amazing grace. Amazing grace. You think your cause is hopeless? Call to Christ in faith. You think that your sins are too great? Your crimes unforgivable? Call to Jesus in faith. You think it's too late? You think too much time has passed? Call to Jesus in faith and receive grace. Amen? Lord God in heaven, we thank you, Father, for the great and wonderful work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. We thank you, Father in heaven, that his body did not remain in the tomb, but that he came to life again. We thank you, Father in heaven, that he's ascended in heaven, sitting at your right hand. We thank you, Lord God, for the gift of the Holy Spirit who makes all of this real to us and opens our eyes and enlightens our minds with the with pure word of your truth. We thank you and praise you, Father, and we look forward to the day that with with uh, without these mortal bodies, without this uh, old sinful nature, that we can cry out to you in praise and purity and holiness, even as you are. We thank you and praise you for the wonderful gift of everlasting life because of your amazing grace. In Jesus Christ's name I pray, amen. How's, how's the family? Well, <laughs> well, not here. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> I've been spending almost the same amount of time in Alabama. Yeah, here. yeah. Have you retired yet? 
semi? Really. Okay. Not, I mean, not officially. Yeah. But I'm not doing a whole lot. Yeah. <laughs> Being yeah. gone so much. You sure. Keep a business going. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're right. It's yeah. hard. Yeah, it is hard. Something you said caught my attention. Imagine that. Huh? <laughs> That's a good sign. Isn't it? Like, sometimes. <laughs> Billy Graham. I was watching Billy Graham last night on his crusade. Yeah, yeah. I don't know, years ago. Sure. And he said something. He said, repentance is a change of mind. Yeah. God has to change your heart. Yeah. Repentance doesn't change your heart. Uh, but, you know, that deal some people here lately have left because of some of that Yes, yes. It's all up to God. Yeah. yeah. No matter how he changes yeah. your mind or causes you to repent, yeah. it's what he did, yeah. not what you did. And we try and we try to explain to that, folks, that's, that's, not, that's not what we're teaching, that's not what we're preaching. Yeah. But for some reason, they just couldn't make that connection. Yeah, I, I think I, they went out from us. Yeah. Yeah, they were, yeah. They, I, you know, I... And honestly, there was a lot of, oops, here I am having this conversation. <laughs>